Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Well, let's do this. Welcome to Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc. We've got a very special guest today. His name is Everett Harper. And he is the author of a brand new book called Move to the Edge, Declare Its Center, Practices and Processes for Creatively Solving Complex Problems. Everett Harper is the CEO and co-founder of 5000 Fast Growing Company. Everett worked also in past for Linden Labs, Self-Help, Bain & Company, and serves on the board of Care USA. Everett is an alum of Stanford University with an MBA and an MED, and Duke University with a BSEE, and won the NCAA National Championship in Soccer while at Duke University. Let us welcome my guest, Everett Harper. Everett, so great to see you, buddy. Great to be here. I really appreciate being able to connect with you on the show and looking forward to, to talking with your listeners and talking to you directly. Well, thanks. Um, People might not know, but Everett and I went to high school together in Dutchess County in New York. Little, little bitty town. <laughs> couple, yes, couple of a uh, couple of uh, hours outside of New York City. Um, so proud of all that you've done, and we'll jump right in and, and and get into some things that are very important, I think, for the viewers and listeners of the show. How did a crisis or various crises impact the writing of your book? in general. With my company, Trust, one of the things that really put us on the map was being invited to help fix the healthcare.gov debacle. That's a crisis. <laughs> and one of the things that we learned- Obamacare, Obamacare right? Obamacare, exactly. And we were invited with other companies to help solve a problem with high impact, a big deadline, and a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainties. Crises are complex. And so, we learned how to navigate and make decisions through those uncertainties to get to a solution at the end. We started to repeat that with other clients. We work with Fortune 50 companies, we work with startups and, and newly uh, public companies, and we work with some of the largest government agencies. So over time, we got practiced at it. But the thing that really sparked writing the book was the triple whammy in 2020, which was the wildfires in California, the um, pandemic, and George Floyd being murdered. Those were all complex problems that threw the nation into crisis. And what I saw were leaders who weren't speaking up, who froze, or who just relied on what they always knew how to do. How many people when the pandemic was uh, started, said, oh, it's gonna be over in a month or six weeks. And just, we're just gonna power our way through. That's not, that wasn't really what's happening. And so I thought, hey, this is an opportunity to share what we've learned at Trust, share what I've learned personally as a leader in dealing with crisis, 
so that other leaders can realize, hey, it's okay not to know the answer. It's okay to be uncertain, but you don't get that as an excuse. You can navigate through them anyway, and my framework shares how to do that. That's terrific. And, and so what people might not understand when they first hear Obamacare, they see your engineering background, they understand your experience in tech, which is tech quantitative oriented. Um, you have a mixture. That's why it's complex. And, and there's a lot of different things happening at the same time as a system or a technology well human behavior becomes a central part of any decision making because anxiety past experiences um bias and so much more becomes a part of the problem. that's right that's right and you know for folks who our leaders who really understand software is just a piece of the infrastructure of working in an organization. There's the operations of that. How do things get done? And then there's the people. And people are complex, right? So an organization of people is complex. And so what it means is starting to look at the interactions between all those and understanding how even if you don't know the one answer, you can still make good decisions and move forward anyway. And that's really is what's frankly, it's what it's gonna to take to deal with inequity. It's gonna to take to deal with climate. It's gonna to take to deal with trying to figure out forest fires. And we could go on and on. The most urgent problems of, our, of the next decade are complex problems. And we can't attack them or solve them using the same way that we've thought in the previous decades or even century. Fantastic. Looking at these processes, looking at these practices, what are the top three that you utilize in your book and within your firm that best help both the quantitative side of who we are as complex beings? Right, right. So let me give you a brief summary and that will categorize the three things. Move to the edge is really about asking questions. How do you navigate through unknowns and start to iterate your way through till you have more of a shape of what the picture is, until you iterate towards a solution. It's very common in modern software development. And what we've discovered, it's also really helpful in thinking about the human part of the equation that you just referred to. Declare it center is about the processes in, and the infrastructure to create a system. And the system can be scaled to grow with your organization. Second, it can be shared. So it's not just one person solving, it's an entire organization that's able to participate. And then it's sustainable. The last two years have taught us with all the burnout and the great resignation that if you try and power your way through, people burn out. So these methods and systems that I'm gonna describe really about navigating through unknowns and systematizing solutions. So let me give you one for um, let me give you one for making decisions um, a retrospective. So retrospective is a really um, simple process that organizations can repeat when they're trying to do something new. So I'll give you a quick example. 
if you're trying to figure out how to solve a particular problem, you make certain assumptions and you go for it. But you iterate every month, for example, and get everybody the team together and you have a particular type of meeting. You 10 minutes say, here's what's worked well and here's what didn't work well. Discuss, read them out, learn some things. Then you take 15 minutes and say, here's what didn't go well and here's what we can learn from it. There's two keys to this meeting. It sounds normal, right? But here's the key. One, the answers are given anonymously. So that means anybody can participate. And second, it's a blameless process. Meaning the goal is to learn, not to assign blame. As a leader, you are desperate to actually get people who are closest to the problem to, under, to give you information because they're closest to what the solution is. That was the problem with healthcare.gov, for example. Engineers knew what the solution was, or at least could have experiments, but it had to go through five levels of leadership in order to make anything happen. Sounds like the old IBM days, right? Where there's seven layers of management, and by the time a decision gets made, the problem is a year old. Retrospectives put a process to learn, correct, and then action items to make sure stuff gets done. A month later, you do another retrospective. And it's amazing what happens when you can get everybody at the table in a blameless postmortem and in a retrospective, because the people might talk about psychological safety. It creates psychological safety within your team. And psychological safety is one of those things that's critical to being able to create solutions. So that's one, a retrospective. Uh, I detail all the details in the book. Two, a pre-mortem. This is one of my favorites. Pre-mortem is to ask yourself when you're starting a project. Actually, give me an example of a, of a, of a crisis situation that you uh, have encountered or, or encountering. Oh, gosh. Right now, it's uh, the uh, variants within the pandemic and bosses still seeking, I use the word force, hybrid of a minimum of three days, no matter what, you gotta be in the office. 85% of the time you're on a Zoom call and someone just did a three hour commute from Connecticut with a train, a subway and walking and somebody sitting in their pajamas in Europe or in Brooklyn and off before they even start the meeting. That's right, okay. So say there was a policy that this is what you have to do. You gotta come into the office um, uh, at least three days uh, three days a week, right? Despite what's going on in the pandemic. So here's what a pre-mortem would be. Say, we're gonna launch that policy. In nine months, team, tell me all the ways that that could fail. It was a horrible disaster. Tell us all the ways that it failed. And you get the team to start talking. I when, I, when we do it, I often just say, okay, I'll go first. The CEO wasn't paying attention, right? It loosens people up. You know, it's a little bit of uh, self-deprecation and it may also be true from time to time, right? So people then start to say, well, how do people feel about in being in Europe versus in Connecticut or New York City? Why do we have different experiences when we're on the Zoom call? Does that seem fair? Um, wait a minute. We have a very competitive um, uh, employment market. Well, what's the risk of people leaving? We have valuable folks who are commuting hours a day. Is there a better way that, that in fact, 
I don't think that that's the best way they should be using their time. So you lay out all the ways that it can fail. And the amazing thing is a lot of times you can't predict it by looking forward, but you can look backwards and go, oh, how did we get here? We forgot this and so we didn't do that. Or we, it's an amazing, fun, and really impactful learning process. That's a pre-mortem. Everett, could I just throw in one potential stickler because it's, it's where a lot of people are these days. So many times, and I might get labeled an, an ageist by, by focusing in on this, that a white male, powerful, who is at the apex of the triangle, is saying to everybody, this is the only way we do it, and there'll be no changes. You're lucky. Great. If it were up to me, You'd be in the office every single day. These are the guys that you're hearing that are being quoted in the newspaper to the news, and I get the phone call. Party, and you can go out to a restaurant. You can come into the office. On CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, and Global News. That is not an atmosphere of feeling safe, whether you're saying anonymous or not. And certainly not all sitting in a circle. They might not be in a circle. They might be doing it through Zoom or they might be doing it through an email to give feedback. And whoever's collecting the data is going to keep it anonymous. But you're still afraid, even though you're being told that it's anonymous, when that is the culture, the attitude, and the fear of walking on eggshells with anything that comes out of your mouth regarding this issue. How do you deal with that? So um, it's a great question. It happens all the time. Here's a question I'd ask back. What's the data on the number of people that are leaving that company, particularly in a high competitive environment? Anybody who works in technology, for example, the competition for engineers, talented designers, infrastructure folks is massive. That perspective of that leader, you're gonna lose. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask how many people have you been losing? And then I'm gonna start asking, um, how are your, uh, is your ability to solve problems quickly, right? Um, maybe they're in a really, you know, standard industry, but standard industries have complexity too. So I think that would be the first question I would ask. Um, and then of the leader, I would say, so look, you know, um, you have a culture where you don't get the best of your people because you're telling them what they know and what they, they do as if you know everything about what's going on. And the fact is over a certain size, I certainly question that. So um, now it doesn't mean it's an easy solution. I think I would ask the question back what the data says, which is how well are your people performing? How, how are you, I bet you I'd look into uh, what their glass door reviews are and then I'd start asking questions about, um, is that the company you want? Are you do you prefer to be right? Or do you prefer to have a great company? Sometimes they're not the same thing. Well, in addition to that, if, if that I would throw in my line of work as a lot is part of that fear is them thinking that the CEO level is the only level that it goes up to. If the board is a part of the process, the accountability is different. 
And if a board member, especially the chairman of the board, asked me privately with general counsel, somebody else in the room, could this be a, an opportunity for us to test the CEO's abilities because he hasn't hit his numbers the last three or four quarters? And if he does horribly in this process, it might be an additional excuse to change. Right. And not knowing is the thing that if you put blinders on and say, I only am looking at this in one way, um, there's blind spots all the time. And the best thing about having diverse teams, diverse perspectives across um, from the top level down to the bottom level is that you get uh, a richness of feedback and a richness of ideas. The whole point of retrospectives and pre-mortems are getting feedback. If you're not getting feedback from your employees, imagine what your customers think. You're probably yeah. not getting. You're probably not giving them opportunities to give you feedback about how to be better either. Talk to us a little bit about World Central Kitchen and how that's another example of a potential solution to crises of food and starvation and sometimes war-torn countries. Yeah. So I had a great opportunity. For those who don't know, World Central Kitchen started by Jose Andes, world-famous restaurateur. Um, who has a passion and has a passion for giving back and the way he's giving back along with his CEO, Nate Mook, um, is how do we nourish communities after disaster? And the key word is nourish. Mm. And he's not talking about how do we get people MRDs as quickly as possible. He's talking about how do we re-engage an entire community around food and around nourishment. So it means their solutions are much broader. Now I knew about their work and I was admiring of their work as a board member of CARE who also does with international uh, development response. They were also focused on how do we engage local solutions, uh, local solutions, this is a theme, right? So getting the local solutions and then being able to amplify those solutions through systems. So I had an instinct about that. So I got in touch with, with Nate. He graciously gave me time to interview him. I didn't tell him about the thesis of the book. And the fascinating thing that he said was, we go into places like New Orleans after a uh, hurricane, or we go into to Japan, or we go into Greece after the fires, or, or, or. We don't know what's going on. And we don't try to know what's going on before we get there. What he has are methods and processes to start to ask the right questions so that they can form a solution. I was like, oh my God, this is a perfect thing for the book. I'll give you one colorful example. He talked about when they went to New Orleans um, and he said, what they do is they look for, they go to satellite imagery and they look for white uh, rectangles. Those white rectangles indicate what? They indicate trailer homes and trailer parks. Why are trailer parks important? Because so much of the intensity of a disaster is on trailer parks. And they're likely to be in or near those trailer parks people so they can go in there and quickly find out what's going on on the ground. They have training for their people about how to ask the right questions. Then from there, they have a worldwide system of restaurateurs, of energy suppliers, et cetera, who can quickly mobilize and get the needed resources for that community there. Here's the key local solutions, asking questions, and then engaging in a system that they can repeat. 
That's why they can go into Ukraine like they have been under incredible stress and quickly mobilize worldwide resources to get nourishment to people on the ground in war-torn communities. It's an incredible story. Uh, there are other organizations that do the same care, as I mentioned as well, but I had an opportunity to interview them and they were, they, it really exemplifies the point of the book. Well, it also goes to what you were saying before, asked about very complex uh, corporate environments that are, are huge, right? Conglomerates. And you have a very headstrong CEO that's been rewarded based on previous that's changed. And still the, the management structure is top down, not just top down kindly, but top down forcefully. And, you know, I like that you're on eggshell worker, you know, 1940s, 1950s mentality with a paradigm that's two generations old versus what you're talking about, listening, utilizing the data, utilizing the experiences and, and systems that are developed from the bottom up with a boss that has an active listening ear first before anything. And you brought up something I talk about it in the book. A lot of our management practice and leadership practice comes actually from the early teens of the last century. And Taylorism is, is what's commonly called, but basically it was designed for people in factories. You could think of people as cogs in a wheel and Henry Ford and others scaled that up. If the world was like building a Model T, then that would be fine. But as I said at the beginning, the world is complex. Um, right. By the time you roll out a Model T, people want a Tesla, right? I mean, it's, it's a different world. And so the leadership model we still practice and the science, in some ways, um, think about it this way. All of our management practice and leadership practice depend on one central assumption, a building. Office building or factory? What if you take away the building? That's the question. That gets really interesting. What jobs get more productive when you can work at home or work in pods or work flexibly? What does productivity look like, really, when I'm not measuring how many, how many widgets you produce, but how much knowledge you generate, how much customer um, loyalty you generate? That's not, that's not a linear process. Right. So the thing you mentioned about a leader, the new skills of a leader, which is the last half of my book, is about the personal practices. In James White and a couple others you mentioned, you talked about vulnerability. You talked about being able to face, I don't know all the answers. And the challenge is for leaders to say, it's okay to say, I don't know. How can you put processes together that help people follow you anyway? Let's jump in deeply with that because I think it's segue to diversity, equality, and inclusion. Um, let's frame it for people. So we have shifting demographics in our world and in our nation that have people of color moving to majority. There are several cities in our world and in our nation that are now minority-majority cities, case in point, New York City in 1994, flipped from a minority to minority-majority city and still have, on average, 2% people of color in leadership positions, 
certainly not equity of pay. Um, highly educated workforce still complains here that you know the systems don't allow us to make the change with the speed that you're looking for. But then we have studies like the McKinsey study and the Deloitte studies and others that are seven, eight years old that prove that complex organizations, examples of some who have done the right thing from intern through board member, looking at ethnic diversity data and all types of other data is transparently and being held accountable and rewarding those bonuses to be on track to make this a top priority, but we still have most organizations falling short and doing cover work versus seeking true and lasting. What has been the example within your company regarding DEI, diversity, equality, and inclusion? And what is your message for all those that are watching and listening as to the best practices approach to doing so today? Right. Um, all the things you cite are backed with data, are backed with research. Uh, late great Kathy Williams did a lot of research on stock price being uh, higher when you have a diverse board, for example. Um, we knew this, and you know, I'm a CEO. My co-founder is a white, technically astute woman. Um, she's now the COO, but she was our technical lead and a white man. So right from the back, we had a commitment to having diverse, a diverse company. But then the question becomes, how do we not be window dressing? How do we be more than that? And how do we take action to ensure that the value we have is translated into data that we can be held accountable for, as you said? So that's the first thing. And so setting a culture early on and setting up value is the key thing. So if there's one message, it's if you're committed to that, put that early because it's a heck of a lot harder to change an organization when it's 100 people than when it's 10. But it's not, it's not uh, you, you can still do it. So here's what we did. We said, okay, people are not being paid the same for the same work. Generally, it's people of color and women not being paid for the same as white men. And we thought, how do we make sure to deal with this? So we did a bunch of research. We did a bunch of surveys. That's one of our techniques. And we realized one of the things that we could do was make all of our salaries transparent. And this was in 2017. And this has relevance for folks in New York, you're listening to audience in New York because of the recent laws. And so the message for that, for that is, there's a way to do it. There's a way to make the transition. And so I detail in my book, all the steps we took. Let me kind of shrink it and then we can get into some of the details. Sure. Let me tell you the first question we asked, and this is when we were 20 people in 2017, will people leave, right? Are people going to leave? found out that, nope, most people are, are down with this and they're waiting to see what happens. Great. Then we asked question, are we asking the right kind of questions? That was our research. Then we said, do we have the right systems to measure this because we have to hold ourselves accountable? That is what took us the longest time. And I'll bet there's a lot of people in the audience, when you get into the non-sexy work of rubrics and uh, pay grades and so forth, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be created first. That took five months. But the key was we involved people at all levels of the organization to come up with a solution. Why? It builds trust. So if it's just a top-down thing, you're probably not going to get the buy-in and you're probably not going to learn anything as or as, as much if you don't involve other people. 
Then we also communicated consistently. And since you're a communication expert, we, when we said we were going to communicate, we did. We gave updates. Even if there wasn't much to, to say, we could say, this is what we've done. This is what we're going to do. Again, it builds trust. Right. Finally, um, we launched it after nine months of work and did all the research, did all the things. And the answer was ho-hum. Because they knew it was coming. They participated in the answer. And we built trust over nine months to do this. Now, here's the kicker. A lot of people think, oh, my God, my, my salary is out there. You know, they're going to come after me. But what happened was one of our employees said, hey, I think that person over there, based on the work that they're doing, is not getting paid enough. They should be paid more. And she was right. What we realized is we needed to create a system for appeals. So instead of, creating, instead of creating an outcome where people were fighting against each other, we gave people a method to say, I can advocate for somebody else who I think is doing a great job. How great is a culture when people are standing up for each other rather than fighting against each other? Now, that was 20 people. We're now almost 140. It scaled really well. And we put it right up front on our website. This is what we do. And um, this is an important part of our culture and it's for equity purposes. And everybody, you know, when I talk about this stuff and uh, let me get to kind of the last part of your question, which was what the message is. The message is set the culture. Say this is a commitment and back it up. Two, create methods to get feedback that involve other people, particularly diverse people, different organizations, parts of the organization, different backgrounds. Three, develop a system that is measurable and accountable. And then four, when you implement it, continue to iterate because you're going to be wrong in a couple of cases. It doesn't mean you have to have it perfect. It means you have to put a starting point there and then get better and get better and get better. And I would add, when it's working, it becomes a critical point. Then people want to work there. Because you have a key differentiator that works. That's right. That's right. And we've, like I said, we've had this now since 2017. People know, and it, it attracts the right people. And it's, it's been, a, it's been a, and it, oh, and I'll tell you one other little thing um, from a business perspective. There's other benefits to that. So if you're a service business and you're trying to get put together a project team, anybody knows how to price that because we know what our costs are you know kind of it, it quickens the interview process because you don't have a lot of long negotiations. In a world that's highly competitive for interviews, time to interview and time to close is an important metric of getting somebody in. If you can cut that time down by making salaries transparent, you're likely to get people And the data for us has shown that that's the case. So tell me about the beginning as we move towards the end of the interview soon. Let's go back to Obamacare. Let's go back to healthcare.gov. We know that it's more than systems. Let's talk about the branding aspect of that. How did you deal with the impact of people learning? And as you said so humbly, for a part of a team who did that, but obviously you were called in and had a great impact on the solution. How did you then take that branding as other? Government entities, 
inequities. We know in our space, for example, if you're a former press secretary to the governor or to the president of the United States, especially, or communications director, you might not know anything about financial communications, investments, um, most most of the, the techniques within corporate communications, but because you work for the president, we want you. And some of those people are my friends, by the way, and when they leave those jobs, they go, Mike, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Hire well. So in your space, how did you utilize operation that said, we've got big problems like that here. We want to hire you. Walk us through that process in the beginning and how that might have changed to how you handle it today in dealing with the branding aspect of that. Yeah. So I think um, it's a really good question. I think there's two angles that I want to address. One was that we realized that the method that we use to solve a complex problem, instead of being command control linear, was agile, which a lot of people now have heard, agile software development, human-centered. We interviewed people, not assumed answers. So human-centered, agile, digital services, we realized there's a couple of us that are thinking this way. And healthcare.gov gave us the opportunity, a leverage point to change the way the government procures software. At the time, it was all about command control. We know what the answer is. We said there's a different way and look at the outcome. So for example, at that time, government was not on the cloud. So some of the folks who are working on team got government on the cloud, incredibly important. So in the eight years, almost 12 years since I had nine years actually, we now have an ecosystem of these kinds of companies that work with federal, state and local agencies. And now Agile is no longer, what the heck is Agile? It's in a lot of the RFPs. So we changed the, the real lever was the procurement system. And when you can get a procurement system that allows for these creative agile entities, then you have a lot more companies coming in with much more modern approaches to software. So that's, I think, the first one. Um, the second one from a branding perspective is there are a lot of people who want to work for a company like this, who could solve complex problems with societal impacts, but do it in a modern way. And so we had a lot of people who wanted to work for us and we benefited still from a lot of those folks coming in the, in the work. And then for corporations, people say, oh, this is a government problem, whatever. I bet you supply chain reminded uh, corporations that there's systems problems there too. And so any company, for example, that acquired a lot of companies, they have now 10, 15 different systems all siloed, the data doesn't make sense, you can't tie it, and all of a sudden you get supply chain That's issues. Right. Oh no, I can't, I don't know whether the data from Ukraine is the same as data from Southeast Asia, is the same as data from Northeast Africa, is the same in Australia, where the heck is my shipment? We've okay. dealt with that problem, both with the US government, with the DoD Transcom and developing software to solve that, as well as with a Fortune 50 company that wanted to accelerate their ability to understand this through their data. You mentioned the pandemic, and I've done space uh, since the beginning. And 
One of the things that we've learned, especially from the World Health Organization, is that the inequality, the way in which we choose which countries, which people get various types of solutions is still a horrible, horrible inequality crisis of many types. Um, so for example, I have family in the Caribbean. I have told Based on what I'm seeing in the data right now, we're probably not coming down to visit for at least two to three years from now, based on where the numbers are currently, and the influx of others coming into the country and other places on boats and you know, changing the community environment of risk for us who have taken all this time, knock wood, thus far, None of the kids, none of my immediate family have been sick with COVID at all. We wear a mask more than others and can't take that risk, want to enjoy the vacation and also catch up with relatives and not constantly walking on eggshells with just leaving to go and see family or, or, or see the country. Um, that's an easier solution versus... You're in Africa, you're in India, you just want to get out of your home in a safe way. Inferior solutions that aren't the same as Pfizer, that aren't the same as other the major brands that are out there. What is your thinking from a pandemic perspective over yet? What would the potential solution be for the companies who can help and how that would also help them, as you say, from a stock market perspective, from a branding perspective, from a ESG, giving back with corporate social responsibility, the value of all of that, and just doing the right thing. Do we think we'll see some changes soon that allows tipping point change for these countries that are really suffering still today with a lack? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's such an important issue, and I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, First, I think it has to be said that the U.S. government uh, rejected a major funding bill that would have brought vaccines internationally. As a care board member, we advocated really strongly for that because at scale, those funds would have gone across the world to help people, and it's just a shame. I'll just leave it at that. However, the approach that I think would I would be taking, and again, I I'll, I'll go back to the book, I don't have the solution. I have a hypothesis that I can test and I have questions. So the question I would have about you know, being able to participate as a corporation, ESG, et cetera, is where and how can you identify local organizations that have and understand their local situation? World Central Kitchen gives you a good example. CARES mantra is... Um, locally, locally uh, sourced and globally scaled. So being able to support those local organizations and understand what is it that they actually need by talking to them and then figuring out how you can support those local organizations. That's the first question. Then the second question is, how can you make whatever local solution scale? Maybe something in Vietnam works in Africa, or maybe it doesn't. But there's probably a system of, for example, delivery of basic supplies that you can work with different organizations to, to um, that corporations with scale can help deliver those solutions across the world.
that gets really interesting. I think the third actually is to influence the funding cycles. So as funders get interested in this, how do you make sure that those funders are also keeping accountable to the impact and the scale of their work? Um, those are the three places that I would start to push on um, in terms of creating policy and a creative trying to, to have an impact on this. Great points. So we have one last message before we say goodbye. Of all the messages that we've discussed thus far, how would you like to leave us with a powerful message that allows people to walk away from this episode? Um, my message is get comfortable with being uncomfortable as a leader. One of what that favorites. means is you can allow yourself to feel like I don't know the answer because the reality is that we, none of us do. And we've all gone through that again, privately, publicly, um, whatever it is, but sometimes you just need to say, okay, I don't know. And this feels uncomfortable because that's the start of then being able to come up with a solution. My book, Multi-Edge Declared Center, is a framework to help from that moment of saying, I don't know, and say, here's five different methods that you can use with your organization to iterate towards a solution. And then here's a bunch of processes that you can apply within your organization to help you scale it and grow it and sustain it. But the first part is us. <laughs> we have to do yes. our own work, right? Um, and there's different parts of the book that sort of address that as well. Um, there's a last thing I'll say is the, as um, a great philosopher once said, how are you gonna win if you ain't right within? And that's, <laughs> the start, that's the start of a book for those who know, know. And that's part of the book. So get comfortable with being uncomfortable and then use a framework to help you navigate through those decisions. Everett, thank you so much for all your messages. This show, even though it's called Reputations in Crisis, we end every show by saying less head work and more heart work, which is a way of reminding people that the way to best solve a crisis is to go. If that's the theme of your message within the book, that's your theme of the examples that you use so wisely. And we thank you for sharing your message with us today. And everybody go out and buy the book, Move Claret Center by Everett Harper. It's on Wiley Press. And we thank you so much for being a guest with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you listeners for hanging with us and hope you got a lot out of it. Thanks so much, Everett. All right. And our t-shirt of the week this week is, you've seen a similar t-shirt that was gray. This is Colin Kaepernick with the Afro fist. Why am I wearing this this week? Colin Kaepernick has an opportunity. Let's hope it turns into a solution for him to potentially retell the team that has said they were going to give him an opportunity with open arms is the Las Vegas Raiders. Let's see what happens. We'll watch this closely to see if Colin actually gets that opportunity more soon.
So my Red Dock opinion about Everett Harper and his new book called Move to the Edge, Declare Its Center is simply this. What intelligent brother and good friend Everett is to be able to look at complex problems, global problems, systematic problems, quantitative, qualitative, look and technology as well as human behavior and what we like to talk about here less head work more heart work combining it all not only into a book but for solutions to very complex problems and complex from governments to corporations to nonprofits around the world not just here in the United States what a blessing to have him as a guest today definitely buy the book Definitely continue to look for the work of trust. That's T-S-S, it's spelled, the company. And we'll continue to look for those solutions coming from Everett's leadership, not only in book form, but in client form. Stay tuned for more for him. Thank you so much for tuning in episode of Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc. And remember, less head work, more heart work, peace. And please remember to follow us our YouTube channel and also on audio digital form on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Have a terrific week. We'll see you soon.